Last week, we covered Psalm 120 and 121. I wanted to make a point to go back to last week for a little bit um, that um, you understand kind of where I'm coming from. And um, we quoted a guy named Eugene Peterson, a book that he wrote called A Long Walk Taken or something like that. And someone accurately pointed out that Eugene Peterson um, was the person behind the Message Bible, which is kind of a disaster when it comes to that. And so I wanted to make a couple comments on Eugene Peterson. Now, while he makes some good statements in that book, because those statements were very good, they were solid, he's not really an author to pursue. And the quote I used at the beginning of the Psalm 120 was written in a book that he wrote in 1980, or 42 years ago. Now, in looking at the history of the author, I went back and looked at the history of the author, and I read those quotes again that, we, that, that he stated. He doesn't appear to have followed his own advice about not listening to his own plea where he said this, Rescue me from the lies of advertisers who claim to know what I need and what I desire, from the lies of entertainers who promote a cheap way to joy, from the lies of politicians who pretend to instruct me in power and morality, from the lies of psychologists who offer to shape my behavior and my morals, so that I will live long and happily and successfully from the lies of the moralists who pretend to promote me to the office of captain of my fate, from the lies of pastors who, quote, leave the commandments of God and hold fast to the traditions of men. That was his quote. That's a good quote. But then he published the message that translation, 13 years after he wrote that book. In July of 2017, he stated that homosexuality is, quote, not a right or wrong thing as far as I am concerned. Then afterwards, he stated that he believed a marriage should be between a man and a woman. What happened? Well, he's trying to write both sides of the fence there. I would say what happened, he left the commandments of God, which he said, keep me from that. And he adopted, quote, from his quote up there, the lies of psychologists who offer to shape my behavior and my morals. Sad to see. And then in October of 2018, he died. He's gone. See, when we abandon the authority of Scripture and bring in the psychologists or the moralists or this is what I want to be my conclusion, then we start to slip. And that's what he did. He became the authority. Someone asked him if he would, uh, before he died, if he would uh, perform a gay marriage. He said, yeah, but I hope I'm not asked to do that. You know, and they tried to back up from that a little bit. 
So once you start abandoning the authority of the Bible, nothing good comes out of that. So Eugene Peterson, while he has some good stuff, he has some bad stuff. And when I'm studying and bringing up stuff, sometimes there are authors like that. Usually what I do, and I should have done in this case, is just not identified him on the good stuff. Because, and if you ever notice when Scott Basolo is teaching or preaching, if he says, a commentator said this, that's because he doesn't want you to know who it was because they have some garbage in there too. But if he likes what they say, he'll say, this guy said that. He's told me that. So I'm not making that up. And that's, a, that's probably what I'll try to be more aware of. Um, but I, I just thought I needed to go back and make a comment on, on Eugene Peterson. Okay? Now we're going to go to Psalm 122, 123. And it is possible we'll do 124 today. It's not in your notes. It just depends on if I have time at the end or not. Again, we have a song of ascents. This is the third of 15 psalms of ascents. It's the third of it. And uh, this talks about the, and these are talking about the movements of people who are traveling to the city of Jerusalem. Psalm 120, the people were far away from it. They were in these lands a long ways away. And in it like Meshes and Kedar. In Psalm 121, they lift their eyes to the hills. It says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Because they could look up and they could see Jerusalem in the distance. So they were getting closer. But now in Psalm 122, the opening line is this. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. So what we have is in Psalm 120, they're a long ways away. Psalm 121, they can see it. And now in Psalm 122, the writer has arrived at his destination. Now when you arrive at a place that has taken a long time and a lot of effort to get to, there's that sense of relief. The traveling is over. Um, it's taken a lot of effort to get there, a lot of time, and there's a sense of accomplishment too. I got there. And that's kind of what the sense you get here. Now historically, this psalm is attributed to David. But we don't know for sure. There's some debate on that. But it's safe to say that David is the author. Uh, but it really doesn't make a lot of difference in the meaning of the psalm because it's going to have the same meaning regardless and the same context that doesn't change it materially so beginning in this psalm the writer is now at his destination Jerusalem he is standing within the gates and within Jerusalem is the house of the Lord And the irony of it is this. What does Jerusalem mean? The name. What's that? 
city of peace or habitation of peace, yes. And this will come, but not until God brings it. Matthew Henry, in his commentary that he wrote in the 16 and early 1700s, after discussing the need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, talks about the peace within the church, as does Charles Spurgeon and James Boyce in their commentaries. Henry wrote this, The peace and welfare of the gospel church, particularly in our land, is to be earnestly desired and prayed for by every one of us. So we have this Jerusalem. It means I'm going on a little rabbit trail here. That's okay. It means a habitation of peace. And so we have 300 years ago, Matthew Henry was saying the peace and the welfare of the gospel church, particularly in our land, which was England, is to be earnestly desired and prayed for by every one of us. And I was thinking on those sentiments. We need to make sure that we are talking about peace within those who are true believers and followers of Jesus Christ. One major challenge we face today is there is a very strong ecumenical movement that is promoting peace or unity between basically every different denomination or faction or group within a very, very broad definition of Christianity. A few examples of what is happening on that front. I don't know if you saw this, but it just came out in the news, I think November or maybe October, There is a One World Religion headquarters to open in 2022. I don't know if it opened or not. The headline was this. The Catholic Muslim Interfaith Council created by Pope Francis announces a new Chrislam. I don't know if you've heard that word before, but it's being used now where you take Christianity and Islam and jam them together for a new word. It says, the new Chrislam headquarters opening in 2022 that combines a mosque and a church according to the signed covenant between the lead, some leaders of Islam and Pope Francis. Now there's a lot of ecumenical movements today that are trying to unite Catholicism and Protestantism. The new apostolic reformation people are big into this. Kenneth Copeland is big into this. Uh, Francis, uh, yeah, Francis Chan is big into this. There's a lot of people that are big into this. They view virtually anyone who would call themselves Christian as fellow believers. What is ignored in these attempts is of solidarity is most all of the biblical doctrine is pushed aside. It's ignored. I've heard preachers, more than one, say something like, they say they believe in Jesus, so that's good enough for me. End the story. Well, what's that mean? Then there's a group called the World Council of Churches. It's an international, interdenominational fellowship of Christian churches. 
Denominations within the World Council of Churches include mainline Protestant, Anglican, and Eastern Orthodox churches. It's intentionally ecumenical and inclusive. The stated aim of the World Council of Churches is to pursue the goal of the visible unity of the church. And I got this from their website, by the way. This involves a process of renewal and change in which member churches pray, worship, discuss, and work together. A different website went on and said, The World Council accepts many heretical teachings. At a conference in 1993, the Deputy Deputy General Secretary on the World Council of Churches taught that we all have, quote, spirit mothers who avenge us and that the spirits of the dead surround us in, quote, the rustling of trees, the groaning of woods, the crying grass, and the moaning rocks, unquote. The same conference also featured a person named Kwok Puilan, a member who defined salvation as, quote, bringing out that is within you, unquote. That's salvation. And she quoted, or he quoted, the uh, Gnostic Gospels, which isn't part of the canon. She justified her use of the Gnostic text by saying that since it was men who decided the canon of the Bible, she was not obliged to accept it. So she just throws out the canon. Well, men decided it, so I can put whatever I want to be truth or the canon. You know, these these home groups where they talk about what is truth and is truth relative. Here we have someone who has made truth relative to the point that I'm going to select what is sacred and what's not sacred, and you can't even challenge it because this is what I accept. That's my truth. Then there's another group called the National Council of Churches. Now, most of the National Council of Churches are also in the World Council of Churches. And it's an organization dedicated to ecumenical cooperation among churches of, quote, every Christian church tradition. The National Council of Churches partners with secular and interfaith partners to advance a shared agenda of peace, progress, and positive change. And that's from their website. The National Council allows different ideas on how we are reconciled to God and suggests that scripture is not clear on this issue or what place the work of Christ may play in the lives of people in other religions. However, for the National Council of Churches, these are secondary issues. Salvation is now a secondary issue. The primary issue is showing love to other people regardless of their position or religious persuasion. If you look at many, or most, of the National Council of Churches, they have abandoned everything. There's 38 different groups in the National Council, by the way. I just looked up three local examples, and I could have gone a lot further. 
Three local examples. And here's what I found. By the way, I did not find the gospel anywhere. I did not find that Jesus came to die for sin, for redemption. One of them is a church that uh, my mother used to go to years ago before it burned down. I mean, we're talking 70 years ago. And from their site, they said, the Christian church, they're part of the Disciples of Christ, by the way, which is a denomination, is a movement for, for wholeness in a fragmented world. Out of our call to, quote, do justice, we strive to demonstrate the fullness of God's shalom through living out our faith by caring for God's creation. In keeping with this demonstration, a resolution concerning carbon neutrality was passed at the 2017 General Assembly in with which the Christian Church committed to reduce our carbon pollution with the goal to become carbon neutral by the year 2030 and climate positive by the year 2035. Then they say in their site, no creed but Christ. They say, we are a movement for Christian unity. We honor our heritage as a movement for Christian unity by cooperating and partnering with other faith communities to work for bringing about wholeness, healing, and justice in the world. This is what it means to be ecumenical. Why? It's just nothing but a social club. Okay? Then there's this another church. Connie and I drove by it when we came to church here this morning from their website this is an Episcopal church who we are welcoming inclusive Episcopal in front of an outline and, and they, they had this Episcopal little uh, kind of a shield they have in front of an outline of the state of Idaho that had the gay pride colors in within the state, leaning on three books of common prayer. You could tell way in the background somewhere there was a Bible in a bookcase. I listened to the local sermon there for November 6th. The local sermon lasted just under 11 minutes. Not one reference to a specific scripture, and it was a horrible speech telling people to act like saints. The church calls for the full legality of LGBTQ people. In 2015, the church's 78th triennial general convention passed resolutions allowing the blessings of same-sex marriages and approved two official liturgies to bless such unions. They have openly ordained uh, ordained openly gay people, both men and women. That's part of the National Council of Churches. There's another group on their website. This is United Methodists. When we saw all means all, or when we say all means all, we mean it. Whether you're a Republican, Democrat, gay or straight, native or newcomer, we want you to feel at home. So this is what some people think we need to have in the we need to have peace in the Christian church, and we do. But it has to be believer to believer. 
There's so many stuff out there that trying to achieve this peace. If the only way to achieve peace is to sacrifice biblical teaching, that price is way too high. Jesus and Christians said Christians would be hated because of him. Yes. I was just going to say the only way to make this work for them is to completely abandon the word God. And that's what they've done. They they take they, yeah, they've abandoned everything but the nice real sweet sayings. You know, turn the other cheek. Those type of things. There's also kind of a common thread. Take a look at those who Yeah, and yeah. if they ever rewrite the Constitution, if they do that, I would be shocked if it was something that was binding like the one that was written that was written. Just like they don't want to make the Bible binding. You know, because everything is relative. But Jesus said Christians would be hated because of him. And hatred is not because Jesus loves sinners. It's because he calls out sin. And he demands repentance and will punish those who will do not so. So let's get back to Psalm 122. What's that? Well, I have a few of them. I'm trying to make sure I don't have my pit and my notes all out of out of line here. Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, "Let us go to the house of the Lord." I've got to open my Bible now because I did not print one page of my notes. It's out of sequence. I don't know why that happened. It's in there, but then I would I would get myself all confused trying to or get you all confused. I was glad when you said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Now in verse three or four it says, Jerusalem that is built is a city as a city is compact together, to which tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, and ordinance for Israel. Give thanks to the name of the Lord. Now the city that is bound firmly together could be referring to um, the city after it was completed. Because Jerusalem doesn't have a lot of suburbs. You know, it's just compact together. That's the way they built that. That's the way they they did that back then. And that, a lot of that was for security to keep people from coming in because you had the walls around it. And it also probably more likely could be referring to how the city is has united the nation. Because people would go to Jerusalem to worship God. That's where that's where David brought the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant. And eventually that's where Solomon built the temple. 
And the people went to Jerusalem as a place of worship. It was a place of national identity and national uh, pride. Jerusalem was the place to go. And if you remember when we were talking about the divided kingdom, when Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the kingdom was split after Solomon, Jeroboam was afraid of that national identity in Jerusalem. And that's why he built a worship place in Samaria and built the golden calves. That was a constant problem for the people because now they became idolaters and didn't worship God the way God told them to do. So that was a that was a extremely poor decision by Jeroboam and it caused problems for a long, long time. As we saw when we were in Second Kings at the uh, toward the end, is that all these kings did evil in the sight of the Lord, and many of them, it says, they followed the sins of Jeroboam. They kept on doing that because Jerusalem was this place of national identity. So that's what we have in verse 3 and 4. And then in verse 5, there were thrones set for judgments, the thrones of the house of David. So Jerusalem, or where the king was, one of the jobs of the king was to pass just justice that can pass judgment on different different events. It not, not like today, our president is not a judge. He's not. He doesn't do anything from on, on the judicial side. But back then, the kings did that. They were judges, and they passed judgment. And then we get to verse six. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem that may prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say my peace be with you. Now, that is a term that probably everyone here has heard. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You still hear it today. Um, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And that's a good thing for us to pray for. The peace of Jerusalem. Again, I have to try to remember what I had on that page because I got my prints all goofed up. Um, But Jerusalem has been a place that hasn't had peace. On the page that I'm trying to find, I had a list of all the times in history that I just thought up, and there's more, where Jerusalem has been under the attack of a war-type situation. Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, you had many... Oh, yeah. The traditional Orthodox Jew, mm-hmm. one of the modern Jews. You have the Messianic Jew who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Right. Who do we pray for? Now, we should pray for all of them, but not in the same 
Well, I think when it says pray for the peace of Jerusalem, it's talking that Jerusalem itself would be protected by God. Yeah. Well, the, the, the Islamic sort there, of course, big, big. Oh yeah. But uh, I, I, well, I pray for the Jews, but I'm sometimes puzzled. Yeah, I, if I pray for the Messianic, that's good. Well, you pray for the non-Messianic that they would become Messianic. Yes. And yes. We pray for the Messianic Jews that they will have a strong testimony mm-hmm. for their brethren. But you look at Jerusalem today, where is the most volatile place on earth? Right there. Right there. What's the most valuable piece of real estate in the world today? Probably the Dome of the Rock. Not monetarily valued, but I mean that's that's for the focus of everything is at. So we have pray for the peace of Jerusalem that may they prosper who love you. May those who follow you, Lord, prosper. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. And we could, we probably should do a little more praying for Jerusalem. Like I know this. there's a great deal of hatred for the Jew, even in our own nation. Oh, sure. I mm-hmm. went to school in New York State, and I felt that there was a strange attitude there. Oh, yeah. Against the Jews. There is a, there's a big-time hatred to the Jews, and that's not, that's not any less today than it was then. You know, you think, well... That all went away with World War II and Hitler's final solution. No. Unfortunately, many Christians are haters of Jews. Oh, absolutely. And, and we should love the Jewish people. We should love the Islamic people. They all need the Lord. They all need the Lord. And then this psalm ends with, For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Now today... We don't go up to Jerusalem to go to the house of the Lord. If we go to Jerusalem, it's kind of as tourists to see, you know, get all this in. But this doesn't mean there's no application for us here. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Spurgeon wrote this. The psalmist prays for Jerusalem because of Zion. How the church salts and savors all around it. The presence of Jehovah our God endears us to endears to us every place wherein he reveals his glory. We are to live for God's cause and to be ready to die for it. First we love it, and then we labor for it, as in this passage we see its good, and then we seek its good. If we can do nothing else, we can intercede for it. Our covenant relation to Jehovah as our God binds us to pray for his people. If we honor God, we desire the prosperity of the church with which he has chosen for his indwelling. So we talked about all these world council and national council and the Chrislam stuff that's going. We need to pray for peace of Jerusalem and we need to pray for the peace within the true church of God that the church of God may prosper who love you. 
that the uh, Episcopal Church, I was telling Connie on the way, that church has abandoned the Word of God. They've abandoned the Gospel, and it's dying. It's dying a very quick death. In the last few years, and I don't remember all the dates, they've gone from an average attendance of 7,000 churches from like six, nine, eight hundred thousand a week to two hundred thousand a week. And if you do the math, it's like 43 people per church. I read an article that said many of them have less than 20 people who attend. Why? They're not telling you. They're, they're, it's a waste of time to go there. And the average age of the people in that denomination is 69 years old. Yes? Mm-hmm. We're not to fall into this stuff. Yes. Which is unity stuff. Yeah, Jesus, there, there's, a, there's a, I watched a video out there of Francis Chan just pleading for the church to have peace and be one with another. And everything he says is probably okay, except that he's accepting, he's, he's accepting everybody. And within the church, within the Christian church, we as individual Christians here need to be at peace with each other. And if we're not, we need to work through that and love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Absolutely. And other brothers and sisters that go to a different church. But we don't sacrifice the gospel. We don't say, yeah, peace at any cost, like Jesus said. I didn't bring to be priests. I didn't come to bring priest peace, but a sword. You know, you don't hear these people talking about that. It's all, oh, it's it's the love of God that we want to promote. But what did Jesus promote? Well, he said things like that. So that real quickly is Psalm 122. Psalm 123 is the next in the Psalm of Ascents. Now, Psalm 120 Psalm 120 began a far a long ways off. Psalm 121 they could look lift up their eyes. Psalm 122 they were at Jerusalem, they could go into the temple, they could go into Jerusalem. Psalm 123 though you're not looking at the temple. You're not looking at Jerusalem. You're lifting up your eyes to God. Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? Here we have a similar beginning, but this time the eyes are lifted up to God enthroned in the heavens. And we're going to read the first couple of verses To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant look to the hands of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. In the opening two verses of this psalm, it focuses on sight, on looking to God. The word eyes is used four times. And lifting or looking up another three times. So what's the focus? Look up. Look 
to God. You know, there are a ton of incredible cathedrals around the world with beauty that's beyond compare in some of them. I had a friend of mine who went to Italy. His wife wanted to go there, and he says, I've seen so many cathedrals, I've had it. I don't want to see any more. Because they're everywhere, and they're all gorgeous. Most, most, more, most of them are more gorgeous on the inside than the outside. You know, if you, I don't know if you've gone to St. John's down here, but inside is very pretty. Outside is kind of neat, but inside is very pretty. But when you go in there, it's easy to take your attention away from God to look what's around you. Similarly, there are a lot of these churches who present worship in such a manner that it feeds the senses and the desires of those who are attending. And the focus of lifting our eyes to the Lord is secondary or it's lost. Focusing on the Lord is something we're admonished to do in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. I love that line. You know, that's one thing you could sit there and just kind of write ten pages on. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What are we to do? Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. When we focus on the Lord, we keep things in their proper perspective. When you summarize the message of Ecclesiastes, when Solomon focused on anything but God, all was vanity. No matter what it was. But when he understood to focus on God that God put God in the proper position in his life then everything came into focus and it had the meaning that he wanted the imagery in verse 2 is something like those in that day would have readily understood it says behold as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master as the eyes of the maidservant look to the hands of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Slaves were constantly looking after their masters. Maidservants, their job was to focus on their master. It was their duty, and they did it constantly. They had to focus on their ma- focus on them, focus yep, all the time. That's that's what they did. So that's what, how we should look on our Lord. We should be focused just like a servant would look to the hand of his master, the maidservant to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Now we've covered it before, but it's a good time to look at it again now. Those who call themselves Christians spend, I mean talking to real believers here, 
spend far too little time, and I'm talking to myself as much as I am to anybody else, spend far too little time and energy looking to the Lord our God. ChristianNews.net reported in 2020 that participants were asked if they were in agreement with this statement, quote, The Bible contains everything a person needs to know to live a meaningful life. You agree or disagree? 37% strongly agreed. 37%. 31%, kind of, agreed somewhat. And 32% disagreed. These were Christians. When asked how often the participant personally reads the Bible on their own while not attending church services, that don't count, right? Only 9% said they read it every day. The lowest figure in the 10 years that the American Bible Society had been conducting the survey. 9%. There was a decrease of 5% from 2019. So from 2019 to 2020, it went from 14 to 9. But 14 isn't a number to be hooting about. 9% of those surveyed said they read the Bible once a month. And that probably meant a couple verses, right? 8% they've said they read it three or four times a year. 11% said they read the scriptures once a year. And 34% said, I don't read it. What does it say to do in Psalm 123? Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maidservant looks to the hands of her mistress, mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Till he has mercy on us. Now I'm going to meddle a little bit here, but that's fine because I'm meddling with myself again. Now compare those statistics with an obsession that's going on in America at this exact moment. It's called the NFL, the National Football League. Through week nine, of the 2022 season, 159 people have watched it in America. 159 million through week nine. An average, an average of 16.2 million people watch each game. Per game, 16.2 million people. Now, if you just figured out how many people are adults in the United States, there's, 33, there's 332 million people in the United States. That's as of July 2021, so, you know. 47 million of those are under 11 years old, so we have to kick them out. They don't care. 284 million are 12 years or older. That means of each game in the NFL, 5.9% of the adults watch it. 
in America for each game. And there's what, 16 games a day? 34% of Christians said they never read the Bible. I'll guarantee you that a whole bunch of those watch the NFL. 11% they read, said they read the scriptures once a year. We put our time where our treasure is. Yes? I'm just curious then, is it okay then if we, if we watch NFL football games, if we read our Bible every day? <laughs> <laughs> you can watch all the NFL you want. I'm not bashing on the NFL. I'm bashing on where our priority, where our treasure is. Right? Where our treasure is. Now, not just to pick on the people that are NFL addicts. How much time is spent playing games on iPhones? In 2014, and I'm sure it's gone up since then, the average person spent three hours a day playing games on their iPhones. That came from a site called VentureBeat.com. We live in a society that places entertainment in a far, far more prominent place than looking to the Lord our God. Why? Because we love ourselves more than we love God. How do we learn? How do we learn to love God more? Get in His Word. Read it. Have His Spirit speak to us. And between games or between uh, between plays, read it if you need to. But it shows where our priorities are. So yeah, this this psalm only has four verses, but it can it can it can. Uh, it can convict. Back to Psalm 123. Alexander McLaren, in writing how believers should look to the Lord, said this. They should stand where they can see him. They should have their gaze fixed upon him. They should look with patient trust as well as with willing eagerness to start into an activity when he indicated his commands. On this we need to understand that looking to the Lord is not our, nation, our natural inclination. My natural inclination is to, I, I know how Scott put it this morning, but I liked it, the, the, the lazy boy of something he said, you know, I'm lazy. Right? I am. I know how I am. And Connie, you don't have to say anything. But our natural inclination is not to pursue that. But if we pursue that, God will it will be it will it will mean a lot to us. And we'll start to get that benefit. Yes. Wouldn't you say there's a correlation between available entertainment today versus the amount of entertainment that was available? Absolutely. Not only that, we have more free time today. 200 years ago, you weren't working uh, eight hours a day and had three weeks, four weeks vacation and had weekends off and, you know, Thanksgiving and the day after Thanksgiving and all the other holidays in between. 
I mean, you were working just to, just to, just to eat, just to put roof over your head, just to have heat. So with, with, with more time that we have today, we don't use that time wisely sometimes. We use it to decompress or whatever you want, might want to call it, but we don't use it. God's given us time. God's given us the most time of most societies ever. Let's use that to learn his word. Spurgeon wrote this on that national inclination. We must use our eyes with resolution. For they will not go upward to the Lord of themselves. But they will incline to look downward or inward or anywhere but to the Lord. He's right. So let's take that and let's pray that God would help us to lift up our eyes to him who is enthroned in the heavens. And then we have in verse 3 and 4 of this psalm. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. The psalm ends with a prayer to God for mercy. Lifting our eyes to him and appealing to God for mercy are the two dominant themes of this psalm. Look to him and ask for mercy. Now mercy with regards to God's mercy is, and I looked up this definition, God's mercy is his benevolent goodness to those in a pitiable or miserable conditions, even though they don't deserve it. As with grace, mercy does not consider the merit or lack of merit to whom God gives mercy. Now, mercy and grace go hand in hand. And they're hard to separate. Or I could say like this friend of mine who is from Germany, he would never say hand in hand. He said, they go hand in glove. He also said, forth and back, not back and forth. But, and actually, I thought about that, and forth and back is actually more accurate. <laughs> but we say it the other way. And the prayer and asking for God's mercy is not an attempt to change the mind or direction of God. We can't do that. This prayer for mercy aligns ourselves to God. Understanding our need for his mercy, it expresses our longing for this gift from God. To pray for God's mercy, to align ourselves with him. We tend to think, if we don't stop and align ourselves right, we tend to think that we deserve God's mercy. Well, I'm a pretty good guy. Romans 6, or 5, 6 to 8, show that this has never been the case. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the concluding marks on Psalm 123, James Boyce wrote this. The only thing that will ever lift you out of your sin and complacency and put you on the pilgrim trail. Now that's where these four psalms are taking us. Down this pilgrim trail to go to, out, you know, away from Jerusalem to Jerusalem to the temple and then out looking up to God. The only thing that will ever lift you out of your sin and complacency and put you on the pilgrim trail and keep you there throughout life is a profound awareness of the mercy and grace of God. That's something that we can just sit and think about. A profound awareness of the mercy and grace of God. And here's a passage to help remind us of that. And that's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 to 7. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Incredible passage there. So, going back to Psalm 123. To you I lift my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant looks to, uh, to, to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Have mercy upon us. And he has given us mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these psalms. As we read through them, there's a lot that we need to do better, do, do more of, looking to you who are enthroned in the heavens. Help us to look to you as the eyes of a servant looks to their master. And then I pray that you would give us your mercy. We don't deserve that, Lord. We just thank you for it. Help us to show our love for everyone here and to all those who are true believers in Jesus Christ. Because we're all in the same boat. We all needed mercy. We were all dead. But you made us alive through your riches and grace and kindness in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.